This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Soft by F. Paul Wilson. First published in 1984, it runs 34 minutes. It comes to us courtesy of F. Paul Wilson and is read by Fred Heimbaugh. Jesse, Fred, and Tamahome will be discussing it afterwards. Soft by F. Paul Wilson. Narrated by Fred Heimbaugh. I was lying on the floor watching TV and exercising what was left of my legs when the newscaster's jaw collapsed. He was right in the middle of the usual plea for anybody who thought they were immune to come to Rockefeller Center when, pfumph, the bottom of his face went soft. I burst out laughing. Daddy, Judy said, shooting me a razor blade look from her wheelchair. I shut up. She was right. Nothing funny about a man's tongue wiggling around in the air, snake like, while his lower jaw flopped down in front of his throat like a sack of jello, and his bottom teeth jutted at the screen, crowns on, rippling like a line of buoys on a bay. A year ago, I would have gagged, but I've changed in ways other than physical since this mess began, and couldn't help feeling good about one of those. Pretty boy newsreaders going soft right in front of the camera. I almost wished I had a bigger screen so I could watch 21 color inches of the scene. He was barely visible on our five inch black and white. The room filled with white noise as the screen went blank. Someone must have taken a look at what was going out on the airwaves and pulled the plug. Not that many people were watching anyway. I flipped the set off to save the batteries. Batteries were good as gold now, better than gold. Who wanted gold nowadays? I looked over at Judy and she was crying softly. Tears slid down her cheeks. Hey, hon. I can't help it, Daddy. I'm so scared. Don't be, Jude. Don't worry. Everything will work out. You'll see. We've got this thing licked, you and me. How can you be so sure? Because it hasn't progressed in weeks. It's over for us. We've got immunity. She glanced down at her legs, then quickly away. It's already too late for me. I reached over and patted my dancer on the hand. Never too late for you, sweetheart, I said in my best bogart. That got a tiny smile out of her. We sat there in the silence. Each thinking our own thoughts. The newsreader had said the cause of the softness had been discovered a virus, a freak mutation that disrupted the calcium matrix of bones. Yeah, sure, that's what they said last year when the first cases cropped up in Boston. A virus, but they never isolated the virus, and the softness spread all over the world. So they began searching for. A subtle and elusive environmental toxin. They never pinned that one down either. Now we were back to the virus again. Who cared? It didn't matter. 
Judy and I had beat it. Whether we had formed the right antibodies or the right antitoxin was just a stupid academic question. The process had been arrested in us. Sure, it had done some damage, but it wasn't doing any more, and that was the important thing. We'd never be the same, but we were going to live. But that man, Judy said, nodding toward the TV, he said that they were looking for people in whom the disease had started and then stopped. That's us, Dad. They said they need to examine people like us so they can find out how to fight it, maybe develop a serum against it. We should... Judy, 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 I said in Cary Grantese to hide my annoyance. How many times did I have to go over this? We've been through all this before. I told you. It's too late for them. Too late for anybody. Too late for everybody but us immunes. I didn't want to discuss it. Judy didn't understand about those kinds of people, how you can't deal with them. I want you to take me down there, she said in the tone she used when she wanted to be stubborn. If you don't want to help, okay. But I do. No, I said that louder than I wanted to, and she flinched more softly. I know those people. I worked all those years in the health department. They'd turn us into lab specimens. They'd suck us dry and use our immunity to try and save themselves. But I want to help somebody. I don't want us to be the last two people on earth. She began to cry again. Judy was frustrated. I could understand that. She was unable to leave the apartment by herself and probably saw me at times as a dictator who had her at his mercy. And she was frightened, probably more frightened than I could imagine. She was only eighteen, and everyone she had ever known in her life, including her mother, was dead. I hoisted myself into the chair next to her and put my arm around her shoulders. She was the only person in the world who mattered to me. That had been true even before the softness began. We're not alone. Take George, for example. And I'm sure there are plenty of other immunes around, hiding like us. When the weather warms up, we'll find each other and start everything over new. But until then... We can't allow the bloodsuckers to drain off whatever it is we've got that protects us. She nodded without saying anything. I wondered if she was agreeing with me or just trying to shut me up. Let's eat, I said with a gusto I didn't really feel. Not hungry. Got to keep up your strength. We'll have soup. How's that sound? She smiled weakly. Okay. Soup. I forgot and almost tried to stand up. Old habits die hard. My lower legs were hanging over the edge of the chair like a pair of sand-filled dancer's tights. I could twitch the muscles and see them ripple under the skin, but a muscle is pretty useless unless it's attached to a bone, and the bones down there were gone. I slipped off my chair to what was left of my knees and shuffled over to the stove. 
The feel of those limp and useless leg muscles squishing under me was repulsive, but I was getting used to it. It hit the kids and old people first, supposedly because their bones were a little soft to begin with, then moved on to the rest of us, starting at the bottom and working its way up, sort of like a Horatio Alger success story. At least that's the way it worked in most people. There were exceptions, of course, like that newscaster. I had followed true to form. My left lower leg collapsed at the end of last month. My right went a few days later. It wasn't a terrible shock. My feet had already gone soft, so I knew the legs were next. Besides, I'd heard the sound. The sound comes in the night when all is quiet. It starts a day or two before a bone goes. A soft sound, like someone gently crinkling cellophane inside your head. No one else can hear it, only you. I think it comes from the bone itself, from millions of tiny fractures slowly interconnecting into a mosaic that eventually causes the bone to dissolve into mush. Like an onrushing train far, far away can be heard if you press your ear to the track, so the sound of each microfracture transmits from bone to bone until it reaches your middle ear. I haven't heard the sound in almost four weeks. I thought I did a couple of times and broke out into a cold, shaking sweat, but no more of my bones have gone. Neither have Judy's. The average case goes from normal person to lump of jelly in three to four weeks. Sometimes it takes longer, but there's always a steady progression. Nothing more has happened to me or Judy since last month. Somehow... Some way, we're immune. With my lower legs dragging behind me, I got to the counter of the kitchenette and kneed my way up the step stool to where I could reach things. I filled a pot with water, at least the pressure was still up, and set it on the sterno stove. With gas and electricity long gone, sterno was a lifesaver. While waiting for the water to boil, I went to the window and looked out. The late afternoon March sky was full of dark gray clouds streaking to the east. Nothing moving on West 16th Street, one floor below, but a few wind-blown leaves from God knows where. I glanced across at the windows of George's apartment, looking for movement but finding none, then back down to the street below. I hadn't seen anybody but George on the street for ages, hadn't seen or smelled smoke in well over two months. The last fires must have finally burned themselves out. The riots were one direct result of the viral theory. Half the city went up in the big riot last fall. Half the city and an awful lot of people. Seems someone got the bright idea that if all the people going soft were put out of their misery and their bodies burned, the plague could be stopped, at least here in Manhattan. The few cops left couldn't stop the mobs. In fact, a lot of the city's ex-cops had been in the mobs. Judy and I lost our apartment when our building went up. Luckily, we hadn't any signs of softness then. We got away with our lives and little else. Water's boiling, Dad, Judy said from across the room. 
I turned and went back to the stove, not saying anything, still thinking about how fast our nice rent-stabilized apartment house had burned, taking everything we had with it. Everything was gone, furniture and futures, gone, all my plans, gone. Here I stood, if you could call it that, a man with a college education, a B.S. in biology, a secure city job, and what was left? No job. Hell, no city. I'd had it all planned for my dancer. She was going to make it so big. I'd hang on to my city job with all those civil servant idiots in the Department of Health, putting up with their sniping and their backstabbing and their lousy office politics, so I could keep all the fringe benefits and foot the bill while Judy pursued the dance. She was going to have it all. Now what? All her talent, all her potential. Where was it going? Going soft. I poured the dry contents of the Lipton envelope into the boiling water, and soon the odor of chicken noodle soup filled the room, which meant we'd have company soon. I dragged the step stool over to the door. Already I could hear their claws begin to scrape against the outer surface of the door, their tiny teeth begin to gnaw at the edges. I climbed up and peered through the hole I'd made last month at what had then been eye level. There they were. The landing was full of them, gray and brown and dirty, with glinty little eyes and naked tails. Revulsion ripped down my skin. I watched their growing number every day now, every time I cooked something, but still hadn't got used to them. So I did Cagney for them. You dirty rats! And turned to wink at Judy on the far side of the fold-out bed. Her expression remained grim. Rats! They were taking over the city. They seemed to be immune to the softness and were traveling in packs that got bigger and bolder with each passing day which was why I'd chosen this building for us. Each apartment was boxed in with pre-stressed concrete block. No rats in the walls here. I waited for the inevitable. Soon it happened. A number of them squealed, screeched, and thrashed at the crowding pushed them at each other's throats. And then there was bedlam out there. I didn't bother to watch anymore. I saw it every day. The pack jumped on the wounded ones. Never failed. They were so hungry they'd eat anything, even each other. And while they were fighting among themselves, they'd leave us in peace with our soup. Soon I had the card table between us, and we were sipping the yellow broth and those tiny noodles. I did a lot of mmm gooding, but it got no response from Judy. Her eyes were fixed on the walkie-talkie on the end table. How come we haven't heard from him? Good question. One that had been bothering me for a couple of days now. Where was George? Usually he stopped by every other day or so to see if there was anything we needed. And if he didn't stop by, he'd call us on the walkie-talkie. We had an arrangement between us that we'd both turn on our headsets every day at 6 p.m. just in case we needed to be in touch. I'd been calling over to George's place across the street at six o'clock sharp for three days running now, with no result. 
He's probably wandering around the city, seeing what he can pick up. He's a resourceful guy. Probably come back with something we can really use, but haven't thought of. Judy didn't flash me the anticipated smile. Instead, she frowned. What if he went down to the research center? I'm sure he didn't, I told her. He's a trusting soul, but he's not a fool. I kept my eyes down as I spoke. I'm not a good liar. And that very question had been nagging at my gut. What if George had been stupid enough to present himself to the researchers? If he had, he was through. They'd never let him go, and we'd never see him again. For George wasn't an immune like us. He was different. Judy and I had caught the virus, or toxin, and defeated it. We were left with terrible scars from the battle, but we had survived. We acquired our immunity through battle with the softness agent. George was special. He had remained untouched. He'd exposed himself to infected people for months as he helped everyone he could and was still hard all over. Not so much as a little toe had gone soft on him. Which meant, to me at least, that George had been born with some sort of immunity to the softness. Wouldn't those researchers love to get their needles and scalpels into him? I wondered if they had. It was possible. George might have been picked up and brought down to the research center against his will. He told me once that he'd seen official-looking vans and cars prowling the streets, driven by guys wearing gas masks or the like. But that had been months ago, and he hadn't reported anything like it since. Certainly, no cars had been on the street in recent memory. I warned him time and again about roaming around in the daylight, but he always laughed good-naturedly and said nobody'd ever catch him. He was too fast. What if he'd run into someone faster? There was only one thing to do. I'm going to take a stroll over to George's just to see if he's okay. Judy gasped. No, Dad, you can't. It's too far. Only across the street. But your legs are only half gone. I'd met George shortly after the last riot. I had two hard legs then. I'd come looking for a sturdier building than the one we'd been burned out of. He helped us move in here. I was suspicious at first. I admit that. I mean, I kept asking myself, what does this guy want? It turned out he only wanted to be friends. And so friends we became. He was soon the only other man I trusted in this whole world. And that being the case, I wanted a gun. For protection against all those other men I didn't trust. George told me he had stolen a bunch during the early lootings. I traded him some sterno and batteries for a thirty-eight and a pump-action 12-gauge shotgun with ammo for both. I promptly sawed off the barrel of the shotgun. If the need arose, I could clear a room real fast with that baby. So it was the shotgun I reached for now. No need to fool with it. I kept its chamber empty and its magazine loaded with number five shells. I laid it on the floor and reached into the rag bag by the door and began tying old undershirts around my knees. Maybe I shouldn't call them knees. With the lower legs and caps gone, knee hardly seemed appropriate, 
but it'll have to serve. From there, it was a look through the peephole to make sure the hall was clear, a blown kiss to Judy, then a shuffle into the hall. I was extra wary at first, ranging the landing up and down, looking for rats, but there weren't any in sight. I slung the shotgun around my neck, letting it hang in front as I started down the stairs one by one on hands and butt, knees first, each flabby lower leg dragging alongside its respective thigh. Two flights down to the lobby, then up on my padded knees to the swinging door, a hard push through, and I was out on the street. Silence. We kept our windows tightly closed against the cold, and so I hadn't noticed the change. Now it hit me like a slap in the face. As a lifelong New Yorker, I'd never heard, or not heard, the city like this. Even when there'd been nothing doing on your street, you could always hear that dull roar pulsing from the sky and the pavement and the walls of the buildings. It was the life sound of the city, the beating of its heart, the whisper of its breath, the susurrant rush of blood through its capillaries. It had stopped. The shiver that ran over me was not just the result of the sharp edge of the March wind. The street was deserted. A plague had been through here, but there was no contorted body strewn about. You didn't fall down and die on the spot with the softness. No, that would be too kind. You died by inches, by bone lengths, in back rooms, trapped, unable to make it to the street. No public displays of morbidity, just solitary deaths of quiet desperation. In a secret way, I was glad everyone was gone. Nobody around to see me tooling across the sidewalk on my rag-wrapped knees like some skid-row geek. The city looked different from down here. You never realize how cracked the sidewalks are, how dirty, when you have legs to stand on. The buildings, their windows glaring red with the setting sun that had poked through the clouds over New Jersey, looked half again as tall as they had when I was a taller man. I shuffled to the street and caught myself looking both ways before sliding off the curb. I smiled at the thought of getting run down by a truck on my first trip in over a month across a street that probably hadn't seen the underside of a car since December. Despite the absurdity of it, I hurried across and felt relief when I finally reached the far curb. Pulling open the damn doors to George's apartment building was a chore, but I slipped through both of them and into the lobby. George's bike, a light-frame Italian model, 10-speeder, was there. I didn't like that. George took that bike everywhere. Of course, he could have found a car and some gas and gone sightseeing, and that told me. But still, the sight of that bike standing there made me uneasy. I shuffled by the silent bank of elevators, watching my longing expression reflected in their silent, immobile chrome doors as I passed. The fire door to the stairwell was a heavy one, but I squeezed through and started up the steps, backward. Maybe there was a better way, but I hadn't found it. It was all in the arms. Sit down on the bottom step, get your arms back, palms down on the step above, lever yourself up, repeat this ten times, and you've done a flight of stairs. Two flights per floor. 
thank the Lord or whatever that George had decided he preferred a second-floor apartment to a penthouse after the final power failure. It was a good thing I was going up backward. I might never have seen the rats if I'd been faced around the other way. Just one appeared at first. Alone, it was almost cute with its twitching whiskers and its head bobbing up and down as it sniffed the air at the bottom of the flight. Then two more joined it, then another half dozen. Soon they were a brown wave undulating up the steps toward me. I hesitated for an instant, horrified and fascinated by their numbers and all their little black eyes sweeping toward me. Then I jolted myself into action. I swung the scatter gun around, pumped a shell into the chamber, and let them have a blast. Dimly through the reverberating roar of the shotgun, I heard a chorus of squeals and saw flashes of flying crimson blossoms. Then I was ducking my face into my arms to protect my eyes from the ricocheting shot. I should have realized the danger of shooting in a cinder-block stairwell like this. Not that it would have changed things. I still had to protect myself but I should have anticipated the ricochets. The rats did what I'd hoped they'd do, jumped on the dead and near-dead of their number and forgot about me. I let the gun hang in front of me again and continued up the stairs to George's floor. He didn't answer his bell, but the door was unlocked. I'd warned him about that in the past, but he'd only laughed in that carefree way of his. Who's gonna pop in, he'd say. Probably no one. But that didn't keep me from locking mine, even though George was the only one who knew where I lived. I wondered if that meant I didn't really trust George. I put the question aside and pushed the door open. It stank inside, and it was empty as far as I could see. But there was this sound, this wheezing coming from one of the bedrooms. Calling his name and announcing my own so I wouldn't get my head blown off, I closed the door behind me, locked it, and followed the sound. I found George. And wretched. George was a blob of flesh in the middle of his bed. Everything but some ribs, some of his facial bones, and the back of his skull had gone soft on him. I stood there on my knees in shock, wondering how this could have happened. George was immune. He'd laughed at the softness. He'd been walking around as good as new just last week. And now! His lips were dry and cracked and blue. He couldn't speak, couldn't swallow, could barely breathe. And his eyes, they seemed to be just floating there in a quivering pool of flesh, begging me, darting to his left again and again, begging me. For what? I looked to his left and saw the guns. He had a suitcase full of them by the bedroom door, all kinds. I picked up a heavy-looking revolver, an S&W 357, and glanced at him. He closed his eyes, and I thought he smiled. I almost dropped the pistol when I realized what he wanted. No, George! He opened his eyes again. They began to fill with tears. George! I can't! Something like a sob bubbled past his lips and his eyes his pleading eyes I stood there a long time in the stink of his bedroom listening to him wheeze 
feeling the sweat collect between my palm and the pistol grip. I knew I couldn't do it. Not George, the big, friendly, good-natured slob I'd been depending on. Suddenly, I felt my pity began to evaporate as a flare of irrational anger began to rise. I had been depending on George now that my legs were half gone, and here he'd gone soft on me. The bitter disappointment fueled my anger. I knew it wasn't right, but I couldn't help hating George just then for letting me down. Damn you, George! I raised the pistol and pointed it where I thought his brain should be. I turned my head away and pulled the trigger. Twice. The pistol jumped in my hand. The sound was deafening in the confines of the bedroom. Then all was quiet except for the ringing in my ears. George wasn't wheezing anymore. I didn't look around. I didn't have to see. I have a good imagination. I fled that apartment as fast as my ruined legs would carry me. But I couldn't escape the vision of George and how he looked before I shot him. It haunted me every inch of the way home, down the now-empty stairs where only a few tufts of dirty brown fur were left to indicate that rats had been swarming there, out into the dusk and across the street and up more stairs to home. George, how could it be? He was immune. Or was he? Maybe the softness had followed a different course in George slowly building up in his system until every bone in his body was riddled with it, and he went soft all at once. God, what a noise he must have heard when all those bones went in one shot. That was why he hadn't been able to call or answer the walkie-talkie. But what if he had been something else? What if the virus theory was right, and George was the victim of a more virulent mutation? The thought made me sick with dread. Because if that were true, it meant Judy would eventually end up like George. And I was going to have to do for her what I'd done for George. But what of me, then? Who was going to end it for me? I didn't know if I had the guts to shoot myself. And what if my hands went soft before I had the chance? I didn't want to think about it but it wouldn't go away. I couldn't remember ever being so frightened. I almost considered going down to Rockefeller Center and presenting Judy and myself to the leechers, but killed that idea real quick. Never. I'm no jerk. I'm college-educated. A degree in biology. I know what they do to us. Inside, Judy had wheeled her chair over to the door and was waiting for me. I couldn't let her know. Not there, I told her before she could ask, and I busied myself with putting the shotgun away so I wouldn't have to look her straight in the eyes. Where could he be? Her voice was tight. I wish I knew. Maybe he went down to Rockefeller Center. If he did, it's the last we'll ever see of him. I can't believe that. Then tell me where else he can be. She was silent. I did Warner Olin's Chan. Number one daughter is finally at loss for words. Peace reigns at last. 
I could see that I failed to amuse, so I decided a change of subject was in order. I'm tired, I said. It was the truth. The trip across the street had been exhausting. Me too, she yawned. Want to get some sleep? I knew she did. I was just staying a step or two ahead of her so she wouldn't have to ask to be put to bed. She was a dancer, a fine, proud artist. Judy would never have to ask anyone to put her to bed. Not while I was around. As long as I was able, I would spare her the indignity of dragging herself along the floor. I gathered Judy up in my arms. The whole lower half of her body was soft. Her legs hung over my left arm like weighted drapes. It was all I could do to keep from crying when I felt them so limp and formless. My dancer. You should have seen her in Swan Lake. Her legs had been so strong, so sleekly muscular, like her mother's. I took her to the bathroom and left her in there, which left me alone with my daymares. What if there really was a mutation of the softness, and my dancer began leaving me again, slowly, inch by inch? What was I going to do when she was gone? My wife was gone. My folks were gone. My what few friends I'd ever had were gone. Judy was the only attachment I had left. Without her, I'd break loose from everything and just float off into space. I needed her. When she was finished in the bathroom, I carried her out and arranged her on the bed. I tucked her in and kissed her goodnight. Out in the living room, I slipped under the covers of the fold-out bed and tried to sleep. It was useless. The fear wouldn't leave me alone. I fought it, telling myself that George was a freak case, that Judy and I had licked the softness. We were immune, and we'd stay immune. Let everyone else turn into puddles of jello. I wasn't going to let them suck us dry to save themselves. We were on our way to inheriting the earth, Judy and I. And we didn't even have to be meek about it. But still, sleep refused to come. So I lay there in the growing darkness in the center of the silent city and listened. Listened as I did every night. As I knew I would listen for the rest of my life. Listened for that sound. That cellophane, crinkling sound. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Tomahome. And I am the one they call Fred. <laughs> Hi, Fred. Or Fred O'Steer. Fred O'Steer. Thanks for narrating this audiobook for us. It was my pleasure, although I'm so sorry that my uh, uh, Bogart uh, impersonation did not fully <laughs> meet with your exacting standards. My exacting standards are uh, I, I like to do Bogart. <laughs> I like to do all of the, the uh, I don't know, the voices in here. It's a fun, really fun story to read aloud. I, I read it at school because uh, it's, it's relatively short. Although I, I noticed that it, the recording is actually, you know, it's 34 minutes, but I, I seem to be able to get through it really fast in, in school. Mm-hmm. And, don't the kids and, like squirm in their seats? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's kind of the fun part, right? Is okay. Jesse, have you have you yeah, talked much about your um, 
your job on the podcast because I don't know much, and I'm fascinated by what school district would allow <laughs> you to pump these poor children's brains full of a, this. I don't have a job like literature. No, I don't have a job like that. My job is more. Um, <laughs> It's like enrichment. It's a, it, I'm a, essentially a tutor rather than a teacher because oh. my classes are one student, two students, three students, up to six students maybe. Oh, lucky um, you. Oh, I didn't know that. I, I think I have, the best job. I have the best job in the world really because we read a lot of H.P. Lovecraft for some reason. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. Phil K. Dick insists on this. We We write poems about ghosts and... And uh, and everything has to rhyme, and forced rhymes are encouraged rather than just regular rhymes. <laughs> and and what's the age range? Um, I try not to teach really young kids. I like teens and above. I've got one student who's like twenty twenty eight. Um, so, I've got university students and teen. Uh, you know, you know, between uh, thirteen and above usually. As in the summertime, sometimes it's like nine. Who is your nine. employer then? Yeah. Uh well I'm I'm kind of partially uh employed by myself. Um because what happens is I get a I've got a good reputation so uh the parents sort of spread the word about Jesse being a fun teacher or a good wow. teacher. That's incredible. Yeah, and then um I work at a what's called a hagwon, a Korean word for academy, I guess is what they would call it and you know, it's like an after-school sort of uh, school. In in Asia, all the kids are basically supposed to be in school between all daylight hours. <laughs> um, and, you know, you wonder why the universities are full of Asian kids. It's because whether they like it or not, their yeah. parents are making them go to school all the time. Yeah. And so even if they don't the do... Tiger moms send them... Uh, yeah, there's a huge, com- you know, com- like the, they are this week, I think one, two or three of my students are gi- giving me the list of universities they've been accepted to. And it's like, you know, it's it's all of them, basically. <laughs> so, yeah. So Hogwan is Korean for Hogwarts is basically what you saying. <laughs> yes. It's, and I am Professor Snape <laughs> or like that. But that is not really related to this story, other no. than um, I like to read this story if if I've got a little block of time, uh, because I think I just think it's really fun to read aloud. Now, I think it's very dated badly in a couple of ways, but I, I think of it as a nice period piece. Maybe in fifty years it'll be like reading, you know, a Lovecraft nineteen twenty story. Wasn't that some of that deliberate, though? Like, he talks about the five-inch black-and-white screen that they're watching. I know. Now, what's going on with that? I mean, you'd have to you'd have to loot a antique store to find a well, black-and-white sto- five-inch screen. Well, this is 1984 was when it was written. Yeah, it would have been written in very early 80s. And, you know, I back was born then, in there the were still black-and-white TVs. I was born in the 60s, and a five-inch screen... Is well, he also said that it was run on batteries, so yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, you know, it's, was, yeah. it's like an emergency uh, television. Okay, I, guess. Well, all right. I just thought that one. Uh, yeah, he's like couldn't figure it out. If only I had an amazing twenty-one inch color TV, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the in the early nineties, I had a 
a a Casio portable television. Like, you know, it's the size of a really like the size of a Walkman. And it had an LCD screen, which was probably not even five inches. Um, I, I, I like that Judy and, and the father are watching both the same tiny five-inch TV. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, huddled over their uh, yeah. horrible softened legs. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, this is body horror, right? Yeah. Oh, what, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that's interesting because I... You know, there's a lot of body horror written, but I don't usually read it. Uh, be more specific. Um, you can call these legs tentacles. <laughs> oh. Yes, they're sort of dragging around like an uh, 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 octopus out of the water, right? Mm-hmm. Now, they still, their muscles, they can, like, they can twitch them, right? So this could mm. get real. I mean, a filmed version of this could get really... Maybe they could oh, do my God. something in the water, yeah. Yeah. Did you think this, like when he first saw the rats, that they were actually people that were like dissolved down to their heads or something? And they were crawling <laughs> on the floor. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I did not think that, but I, I think that's <laughs> really disturbing, Sam. Oh, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that could be adapted for HBO. <laughs> well, that, that's, I think this, this, even though this story's been republished a lot of places, um, and it's even in the new weird, uh, I guess it's not that new, uh, a couple of years ago, a big collection by uh, Jeff Vandermeer came out called The, the New Weird, or just the, maybe it's just The Weird. Um, and it's in there, which is, you know, pretty substantial publication. Um, I, there's never been an adaptation of this, even though this is uh, maybe the most famous F. Paul Wilson short story. Now, why is that? Because to me, the ending is too um, experimental uh, to to be popular. Uh, or, experiment, um, experimental? Not experimental, but it's just um, downer. Um, it just doesn't end with a uh, with a bang, you know. Well, I, they're just I think sitting there thinking yeah, about but, how he's going to deal with the future. Yeah, so that's I think when we we finish this, uh, that's one of the reasons I think this is a good one to read in school is because you say, what's going to happen next? Mm-hmm. And uh, the kids don't want, they they tend to shy away from the, the real answer, which I think is there, right? He goes across the hall, the, the street to see George mm-hmm. and what's happened to George. He's turned into a blob, right? Right. <laughs> but can't George, even properly. George wasn't a partial. Right. No, he went all at once. So, Except for a couple of ribs and the you know part of his face. So, it, I think it's reasonable uh, for the narrator and Judy to cling to this idea that they are special, that they have built up an immunity. I mean, you, you, it's certainly possible. <laughs> They're going to cling to that. He is clinging to that. Yeah. But, but the thing also is right, like that. What kind of lives? I mean. That imagine you're the father there. The, the, he keeps calling her my dancer, my dancer mm. throughout the story. She's got no legs. Like he, he's got partial legs. She has no legs. Well, yeah. she has two weighted drapes. Right. Oh my God, what an image. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, so, so and like, do you, okay, do you wonder so if, if they have repopulate this... the earth. 
Uh, yeah, well, mom's going to be sort of like the, yeah, she's got weighted drapes for legs. Do you, do you suppose they ever entertain themselves by, you know, little games like yanking on each other's legs and then making sound effects or something like, you know, <laughs> ding dong, ding dong, or, you know, wah, wah, or, I don't you think know. So. <laughs> well, they, they have to use the voice of a 1950s actor. When they do it. <laughs> Golly! <laughs> Shazam, Shazam! <laughs> you pulling my legs? Yeah, I don't think that's. I don't think that game will last very long. Um, the father is doing his best, though. He's doing his very best to try and keep the daughter from despair. Right. But um, I, I also think it's interesting. Um, I, I don't know F. Paul Wilson personally. I mean, I I asked him for permission for the story. We've did we've done a show on. Um, on one of his novels, and we uh, did we did one of his stories on protecting Project Pulp. Yeah, and uh, that's actually I th- I think what partially prompted me to uh, ask you about this one. That was a uh, that was a fun one, and it it's super racist, but that's because it's supposed to be right. It's of that period. Yeah, he wrote well, a he wrote an explanation at the beginning, and uh, which we read and. You know, we had to warn our listeners because we got in trouble before. There, there, there's so much of the casual racism, not to mention the occasional. This um, is on you purpose. Know, Edgar yeah. Rice Burroughs and his, you know, complete elaborate racial theories of right. uh, of European superiority, which is like, mm. boy, wow. But yeah, Tarzan um, has lynching in it. The first Tarzan book. Has. Oh, really? I have yeah, Tarzan all. goes around lynching a whole bunch of black uh, people. Yeah, it's it's really <laughs> it's really shocking. We we were able to find two Tarzan stories that we could run, but um, you know, it's it's like even he, his his contempt for. Uh, the Africans is so extreme that like they they come off looking bad even in comparison to the animals. It's just mm. unbelievable. So anyway, well, so, you know, it's, Edgar Rice Burroughs has never been to Africa. He's just <laughs> he's just writing for the American market, so it's yeah. not like he's sensitive to the issues of the people he's casually being racist towards. Well, no, but, but his yeah, that's, that's why not, that story is. It's not is, casual. Uh, that's the problem. It's it's you know as opposed to um, your yellow peril stories where they'll use. Uh, you know, racist terms and that kind of thing. And so if Paul Wilson decided to use racist terms in his Yellow Peril story, which was entitled Sex Slaves of the Dragon Tong. And he said... It's a very fun serial. Yeah, he said um, as soon as he came up with the title, the story had basically popped into his... It wrote, in, wrote itself, is what he said. Mm-hmm. So, and I think, I think, you know, if you're dealing with characters in that time... I don't. I don't know how you can avoid uh, racist language, un- unless no. He, I, I, you would be. You'd be. I mean, you. You have sort of a duty to tackle it. Right. It's like. Right. That's what, one of the things I was saying about. You know, Edgar Allan Poe. Everybody loves Edgar Allan Poe, uh, but the thing is, is one of the things that is conspicuously absent from al- almost all the Poe stories, and the ones that, where it's present. It, it, those aren't the ones that people actually, you know, teach in school or anything. Is is slavery, right? He's alive right before the Civil War, mm-hmm. and he's living in a place where there are a lot of black people, a lot of black people who are slaves, and 
he doesn't really it doesn't interest him at all. And in in that sense, we were talking before the podcast started about uh, you know science fiction being juvenile and specifically Edgar Allan Poe uh, juvenile emotionally. Yes. Um, that's kind of uh, you know he's just interested in the death of beautiful women, right? Doesn't <laughs> care about the fact that there's around them everybody's in chains, right? All yeah. these humans are in chains. Um, so yeah, th- th- there's something like that. But uh, my understanding is that F. Paul Wilson is uh, kind of a libertarian, at least uh, in some of his books. And I, I think there's something like that going on in here, like with the way that the main character, the unnamed father, uh, is against going to the Rockefeller Center, I don't know, study section. He he, he seems to think that they're going to be cut up into little tiny pieces. Yeah. And, He's, he's and, an anti-vaxxer. Yeah, it almost felt a little bit like that. But the thing is, is he also says that he worked for them, mm-hmm. right? Which, which in if you know, he would know better than we. The character would, anyways, right? But yeah, libertarians are not drawn to a public service. That's right. I mean, it's about you know the 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 family, right? It's about the the self and not the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So. It sort of feeds into that a little bit, I think. They're immunes is the word. There, there's an awesome. introduction. They're not immune, right? They're going to die, aren't they? Well, it, can you know for sure? He's going to kill his daughter, isn't he? Well, if it comes to that, if she starts to melt, I think he's going to kill. I think he's going to kill her, and he's then then he's going to kill himself mm-hmm. because that's his fear, right? And it's not like turn into George. He doesn't want to turn into George, and he doesn't want to. I mean, she she has nothing other than her father's, you know, whistling while he opens a can of soup, and then you know, try to keep the rats from breaking down the door while he makes the soup because they can smell the soup. They need to get out not, more. Not a, that's, you know, now now <laughs> the newscaster doesn't even come on TV, and you know. I get the sense that there's almost nobody left alive in the city. Not many. The streets are empty. The, yeah. It's quiet, right? There's no hasn't been a car down the street in months. Yeah, this it's is kind of like I was thinking of The Walking Dead, like uh, the empty totally. city, but there's I, no zombies. I, I was looking up um, people who had made lists of different types of dystopias. Uh, I, no, 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 apocalyptic stories and um io9 has a list of 10 different categories and and virus is one of them Mm -hmm. but and of course the the viral subcategory is completely dominated by zombie stories Mm -hmm. in fact i watched uh, world war z uh this weekend as preparation (laughs) (laughs) um macroscope version of this story and um but there aren't any zombies in the story so um no but it feels like a zombie like it it totally feels like it fits in there well um i, I guess this, you could call this like a partial zombie story because it's like you know the the horror of zombie uh is is sort of happening from the waist getting down infected. in the story yeah uh, it's like from the waist up they're people from the waist down they're zombies uh, yeah, their bodies are betraying them, yeah. and their right. bodies are just this 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 object of horror now. Yeah, decaying. Mm-hmm. So I, you could sort of 
put it in that category. But but there's nobody. The only threats are rats and you know looters, n- non-ill looters in this story. But yeah, the, the, there's another story by uh, uh, Henry Cutner called "The Graveyard Rats." It's kind of similar in that the, the rats are a, it, an existential threat to the main character. They're giant rats, rats of unusual size. Um, <laughs> in this case, they're just rats of unusual numbers, right? Yeah. Um, but th- there's there's that external threat. But I think the internal threat of, uh, as it says in the tiny introduction that uh, I, I picked this out of a book called uh, Of Time and Terror, which is where I originally found it. Should we uh, read that introduction? Yeah, why don't you why don't you read it All since right. you read the story? I'll, I'll adopt my uh, raspy narrator voice Thank because you. Um, I do all my narrations. It wasn't really that appropriate for this story, but I just can't stand the can't sound of my speaking. own voice when I'm talking like a overly loud Midwesterner with spread vowels. I that, I just cannot <laughs> stand the sound of my own voice. So, okay, here we go. When F. Paul Wilson, 1946 began writing fiction, there were few outlets for horror. Thus his novels Healer, Wheels Within Wheels, and An Enemy of the State were marketed as science fiction. Today, Wilson is recognized as one of the leading writers of horror fiction to emerge from the 1980s, although his work sometimes features science fictional trappings and is informed by training as a physician. Soft, A 1984 story can be read as an early allegorical treatment of the AIDS AIDS epidemic, but like all of Wilson's fiction, it focuses on the behaviors that surface when human beings cope with crises. I think that... that uh, very nice. And I had one mistake uh, per paragraph, so that's the usual uh, <laughs> number. It takes me well, we'll, we'll to that that in, yeah. We'll fix it in post. Um, the, I think that that allegorical treatment of the AIDS epidemic, it totally, like, yeah, that's what this story is about. Is it, it? You know, it's not just the people who are getting infected and, oh, he's immune, that guy, right? This is totally what it was like in the early 80s for... I guess late, yeah, late seventies, early eighties for um, people getting AIDS. It's like, hey, he's sick, huh? I wonder what that's caused by. Hey, wait, my other friend's sick. Hey, oh no, I'm not sick, right? And then suddenly you're sick, right? A whole bunch of people had that happen, largely uh, in the big cities like New York, right, where this story's set. Uh, It's it's really, I, I think that's part of why, like, when I was talking to F. Paul Wilson about, you know, getting permission to to do a podcast on this story, I was saying, you know, uh, I really love your story, um, but I I think it's it's really a period piece now. And he says, oh, yeah, um, do you think I should update it? <laughs> like the Judy, 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 I say, you know, I, I have to explain to my students who Cary Grant is, right? It's not, you know. <laughs> and he was saying, like, should it be like uh, Clint? E- no, not Clint Eastwood. Who's the uh, 
the really handsome guy who's not who's not George Clooney. Well, you need somebody Brad that's Pitt famous and has a signature uh, line. And, yeah, you know, yeah. Brad Pitt. What does Brad Pitt? Yeah, say? I, I have no idea. His movies Maybe have Arnold like fifteen lines of dialogue in the whole movie, so that they can yeah. sell it to the international market. I mean, but it has to be old talk. movies, anyways, right? So, like, I, I told him, you know, I don't think you should change oh, a word. Arnold, but. Arnold, that's the person. I'll be back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He could say, "I'll be back, Judy. I'm going across." <laughs> yeah, check on George. Uh, <laughs> Now I'm not sounding like comic book guy. I'm sounding like uh, uh, what's the McBain? McBain. <laughs> McBain. Yes. Um, you have the right so, to remain dead. <laughs> <laughs> Although he doesn't you, say that. That's the title. That's the name yeah. of the movie. But you, you pretty much have to oh, say it. Have you seen that uh, YouTube video where they take all the McBain mm-hmm. clips? And they oh. string them together, and it makes a coherent movie. Well, semi-coherent, yes. Yeah, well, it, um, well above-average coherent movie. Yeah, you should look yeah. for that. I know well, I've seen it. It's oh, good. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a good. Uh, although it's not really related to this, other than the fact <laughs> that um, I think that I mean you can't. You can't have that experience anymore of turning on the TV and watching old movies with your kids, right? Because one of one of the insights I heard that I thought was really interesting about our times is that you know over over time the house changes, right? So that you don't have this room as the focus anymore. It used to be like the rumpus room. My grandma and grandpa had a rumpus room. It's like, wait, what part of the house is the rumpus room in? Well, it's the basement. Well, and what, what the hell what is, is a this, rumpus? Yeah, what is this rumpusing that goes on? <laughs> it's like, like an orgy, Grandma? I don't, <laughs> I'm not into this. Um, I'm afraid to go in that room. There's like chains on the wall or whatever. Um, uh, but one of the th- insights I heard that I thought was really interesting is that the living room in our modern society is di- is dead or dying. Because nobody watches television uh, with the family in front of the television any anymore. If the television is there, it's used for, you know, games or Netflix, right? Uh, My family, we've kind of revived the living room because the rule is that the kids, uh, the kids have a laptop and they're only allowed to look at it in the living room. So (laughs) we sit there, three or four of us together, together. And we're all sitting on different couches and we're all staring into our laptops, but we're together. You're all alone together. Yes. And Do you eye each, each other instead of actually talking? Um, we haven't done too much of that. And we are actually watching Merlin as a family together on the TV. So we actually do. Oh, okay. Yeah. You, you you can find something to come together with. But even so, you're watching it presumably not as it airs, but on Netflix or Correct. DVD or something like that. Right. So the 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 fact that, you know, this father can say... Judy, 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 or uh, a number one daughter, right? And she gets those references yeah, from the movies. Yeah, <laughs> these <laughs> these references Tim. from their shared watching television experience. It's already so eighties, right? That's what yeah. you would do: is you'd stay up late watching old movies. And that's not something anybody does anymore. I mean, I I, I kind of wish there was a channel where they they would show old movies and. Yeah, it's so bad now that 
uh, I had my kids watch. I, I sat them down so they could watch uh, the Star Wars movies. And the the uh, graphics are so primitive. The special effects are so primitive in the in Episode Six. At the end, where he's just looking at the little green lines on his little screen, you know, before right. he's going to launch the torpedo or whatever. And then they can't show the bomb going down the hole because that would be too complicated. And so and then, then suddenly there's this big explosion, right? The Death Star blows up. And my kids sat there. And the, 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 the greatest moment in science fiction cinematic history in the 70s, my kids are watching that. And then they look at me and said, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> so the kids can't even watch 70s movies. They, they're incomprehensible. Wow. Well, you know, it's a skill, Lucas, go right? back it's and Reeves <laughs> special effect it. Yeah, they, I think there is a. I think that was added back in the, oh. or not added back in. It, it was added in a, a where the sperm goes into the egg, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then uh, uh, the giant orgasm, I guess. <laughs> the the job of the hut laughs. And oh, okay. Tam Tam figures it out. Um, yeah, so I I think that. I think that it has been fixed for the modern era. Oh, but I should have got that version. Uh, no, uh, because it's a skill. It's a skill watching old movies, right? When you're a little kid and a black and white movie comes on, even you, uh, wait, you're, you were born in the 60s, maybe not. When I was a little kid, <laughs> I was born in the 70s. When I was a little kid and a black and white movie came on, I didn't want to watch it because it wasn't a cartoon, right? And then I got used to the idea that, oh, okay, color moving pictures shows were okay but not old movies black and white movies are boring and you have to sort of be trained to appreciate them just like the way you have to be trained to appreciate silent movies which i'm still having trouble with yeah <laughs> i i want to like silent movies more than i do and i but it's like the difference between uh the watchman comic and the watchman movie is that the blanks in between the panels or the not the blanks the the frames in between the panels of the comic are what the movie is right the, you you don't actually have to see uh the characters walk out of the room to know that they walked out of the room mm -hmm. you have to be trained to that mm -hmm. and i think that that's why the original star wars untouched is better than than the one where they put in more flying robots and such yeah, I, I kind of miss the old uh, analog effects. I'm kind of yeah. down on the CG. It limited. Things. It totally limited. I mean, w the difference between the new RoboCop and the old RoboCop is that at the end of of the new RoboCop, you have no feelings at all for this guy because he's he's doing things that no human, even if they're only a brain inside of a shell, which is, I guess, what's going on there. Uh, could do. Whereas in the original RoboCop, you 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 love it when he goes into that room and walks into the room in that clunky armor, right? Yeah, they, I think when you have limitation, I think more creativity guys. comes out of it, too. Or even the scenes where he's stalking his uh, <laughs> wife. <laughs> and it's just it's really heartbreaking. It is. And all, what does he do? He just The actor just sort of nods his head. Mm. Somebody was yeah, talking. you don't even see his eyes. It's sort of like the extreme example of that is... Um, is um, V for Vendetta? Who? Um, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Um, Elrond. Well, who played that role? Mm. That was Weaving, wasn't it? What? Uh, yeah, Hugo Weaving. Yeah, yeah right. Wasn't he? 
Yeah, that's him. And he has to do, he has to portray all the emotions just by the way he Tip of the head, tips yeah. his head and nods his mouth. The voice, voices. And the it. voice, of course, yeah. But yeah, uh, I think that that's a very good example. So it, it is a skill you have to be trained up. Or how old are your kids? Maybe that's the problem. Well, now they're uh, sixteen and thirteen, but that's uh, oh, too late it, for them. That was probably you more tra- than five you years have ago. To start the training very young, I think. Well, no, they were they were like uh, you know, probably eleven and nine or something when we watched that. They they can never a Jedi be. <laughs> Maybe it's like classic rock, and one day they'll just discover it on their own and go through it. That's, that's the other thing about Star Wars is is Yoda's wrong about everything, no matter what happens. <laughs> Yoda says it's going to rain tomorrow. Mm. It's completely dry. Yoda is <laughs> the Doctor Smith of uh, <laughs> Star Wars. You remember Doctor <laughs> Smith was uh, on on uh, Lost in Space was the the pain the pain perfect uh, predictor, reverse predictor of whether or not the aliens would be dangerous. Right. He, if he was suspicious of them or wanted to kill them, they were completely benign, uh, and the opposite was uh, vice versa was true. Hey, Yoda, Yoda even is, is a selfish bastard too. He also says like, <laughs> "Don't, don't go help your friends. <laughs> right? They're dying. They need your help. Leave them be. Stay here with me on this mushy, mushy swamp planet." You guys are sounding like David Brin now, backing on Star Wars and Yoda. Well, I think I think that that it's related in that this story is a is a you know about the nostalgia of old movies as a as a way of escaping the horrific pain of reality. Um, don't you think that's why a lot of people get obsessed with Star Wars is because they don't like their regular life; they want to escape into the sure. I mean, as adults, not as, you know, as kids, you, you know, that's what your job is to fantasize about. Well, apocalyptic stories are, are very escapist. And I'm, I'm wondering if either of you feel a certain uncomfortableness with your own interest in apocalypses the way I do. Mm. It feels I, I, a little I like dirty. Yeah. You feel a little <laughs> dirty. Well, because cause apocalypse. Uh, post-apocalyptic stories are never about the guy who gets killed in the first five minutes. <laughs> you know, well, it's, oh, I, th- that will happen to all those other people, but I'll be one of the survivors. Right. You know, it's just, there's something weirdly self-flattering about that kind of thing. Actually, I kind of was thinking to myself, I'm so glad I don't have this disease as I was reading it. I yeah. I had a sense of yeah, relief. Totally. I'm, it, it, but the thing is, is there, it's also like, it seems to have gotten everybody. Well, one of the things I think that explains why zombies are so popular is because it, they are the force of nature that we refuse to acknowledge, which is, you know, death is coming for us all. There are a, a, a number of science fiction writers, including like Robert J. Sawyer, um, but specifically Robert J. Sawyer, who who basically insist that they're never going to die, right? That That the medical cure for uh, death is coming and we are going to get it specifically within our lifetimes. (laughs) And that's just bullshit, right? If, if there was a cure for death, um, you know, it's be, it's to become a tree or to be a, to be a giant uh, turtle, 
That that is basically as close as you can get to a cure for death. <laughs> but uh, that isn't to say we can't extend our lifetimes a little bit. Um, but again, we're going to be living in you know decrepit bodies. So it's 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 sort of that uh, trying to get away from. You have two responses to death that I think you could deal with. One is is to deny it, like, you know, through science fictional means, you say, no, uh, the cure for death is coming. Uh, we see new stories in the newspaper all the time about how this disease and that disease is being conquered, right? And then the other way to go is, no, to uh, embrace it. But our society doesn't really like that. So zombies are sort of a way for that idea to come in and manifest because it... You know, it's not just they're coming to get you, right? Notice that the zombies in these zombie stories, even in Night of the Living Dead, right? They are not old people. They're young people who are, or at least uh, adults in, in their prime who are dead somehow. Because that's the main audience. It's like, it's a memento mori. Like you see in those old paintings, there would be all these people you know, some some old old dude in a mansion with a desk, and he's got like a skull on his desk. Mm-hmm. You say, ooh, how morbid! Well, actually, that thing there is there to help him remind himself every day when he looks at it. I got to make my time worth it here on this earth because I'm not going to be around that much longer. That memento mori is there, and that's what zombies are kind of doing for us because we refuse to think about it otherwise. Is there a fear of old age also? I, I I would guess so, although I think... Because cause when you're old, you, you lose the use of your body, but you are still alive. Mm-hmm. I was going to say this story is about Viagra. <laughs> <laughs> it does have that sort of ring to it, doesn't it? You went soft on me. <laughs> From the waist down. George. Yeah. And he was angry at George, right? We're going soft. Yeah. Or it's an episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> it is set in New York with the, with the George crazy crosses neighbors. the hall. George. <laughs> I think we're done. What do you think? I think we've gone soft. <laughs> Story's gone soft on this. I, I like it. I thought it was good. It's probably... It probably I, I didn't want to read it like uh, last night. I was like, I don't want to go to bed thinking about this. So I, I read it this morning. But I think it, I'm, uh, I bet it plays great like to a full full uh, room of kids going like, oh, my God, like a roller coaster. Yeah, it's a bit. It's a it's it's uh, the thing is, is it it's 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 like right there in the very first line, the very first sentence. I was lying on the floor watching TV and exercising what was left of my legs. But uh, mm-hmm. when the newscaster's jaw collapsed... Yeah, so then wait, I, I knew that what the, was coming. Yeah, As never in any other story, right? I mean, that mm-hmm. that's a sentence that it was made for this. In oh, fact, that's a good first line. It's a great first line, but I also think that it's... It, I'm going to post this on a thread somewhere. It's almost like it doesn't fit with the rest of the story because it's so, I mean, first of all, the news, the fact that there's a newscaster still out there makes me think that there's more people in the city. And I, I get That's this true. sense from the rest of the story that there's almost nobody around left, that they're all jello in their apartment buildings. Well, the, um, the narrator though is clearly someone who's not interested in finding the people if they are out there. Yeah. 
you said you 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 were talking about the the libertarian streak. Yeah, absolutely. He might have the cure in his body, but he doesn't want to let the scientists get it. He might. I, I get the sense that he's 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 that's like a it's like just like Robert J. Sawyer hoping that we're not going to die uh, because medical science will cure all the problems of death very shortly. Uh, every every decade that goes by and that hasn't happened yet, um, his chances of surviving this life go down. Yeah, he's going to be pretty upset, I think. At <laughs> some point, he's going to be, you know, oh, better hurry, guys. I'm not feeling very well. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't care if this has been approved. But <laughs> Just give it to me. I want to try right. it. Actually, Ray, Ray Kurzweil is taking like 100 pills a day so he can live long enough to have his brain uh, copied to a computer. Yeah, there is another person who who absolutely refuses to accept the basic premise of all life so far <laughs> in the universe, which is it cannot go on forever. Uh, He's pretty brilliant, though. He might just uh, invent something. Well, that's what he keeps telling everybody. Yeah. He's so brilliant, he's taking 100 pills a day or whatever it is. I don't think that that's going to help him. I think that he's no better chances of surviving any longer than anybody else uh, in his particular age bracket, no matter how many pills a day he takes. In fact, those pills may be doing him more harm than not. I don't know what pills he's taking. I think it's like vitamins. Yeah, well, Fish you don't oil. need that many vitamins. Fish oil revolutionized my life, I have to tell you. <laughs> really? It did. I, uh, I, I am a classic um, attention deficit brain. My, my brain is, is, works that way. And fish oil lit- almost literally woke up parts of my brain that had been asleep all my life. I am, I am more aware, uh, more, like, more wide-ranging curiosity my reading atten- attention is better. Uh, relating to people as people, there's a <laughs> bit of an uptick in that department. Yeah, I'm you, a, you do seem nicer this time. Are you not eating fish normally? Well, I mean, I, that, I, you're getting a lot of that stuff, whatever it is, uh, antioxidants or omega, whatever, when you take fish oil. Do you take the uh, liquid or the pill? It's a liquid inside a gel cap, and so it's supposed to dissolve after it passes through your stomach okay. so you don't get the fishy burps. <laughs> but, but how do you know it's not uh, rancid? Um, it's a pill. Of course it's good for me. Okay. Of, course it, of course it works. <laughs> That's a silly right It's a pill. Of course it's good for me. <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.